Welcome to Making Peace Visible, the podcast about how the media covers peace and conflict. I'm your host, Jamil Simon. There are a lot of different ways to cover war. One path through the chaos of war is to follow the road offered by the dominant army. In Afghanistan, it was to be embedded with U.S. or NATO troops and to see the war and the world around it through their eyes. Today, we're talking to Betta Dam, a Dutch journalist who has covered the war in Afghanistan for 15 years. She began her coverage in 2006, embedded with the Dutch troops fighting there. It took her a while, but by being curious, by listening carefully to what Afghans were saying, rather than limiting herself to U.S. and NATO officials, she realized that most Western journalists were seeing a distorted view of the war. Embedded journalists were missing the perspective of the Afghan people The coverage made Afghanistan seem more dangerous than it really was. And Betta says the press missed opportunities to hold the U.S. and NATO accountable for major blunders. These mistakes included overlooking the fact that the Taliban surrendered all the way back in December 2001. She has since written two books about what she learned. One is called Looking for the Enemy, Mullah Omar and the Unknown Taliban. The other is called A Man in a Motorcycle. How Hamid Karzai came to power. Betta also teaches a class called Unlearning Afghanistan at Sciences Po in Paris and is working on a PhD on the role of media in conflict. We spoke with Betta on Friday, October 6, 2023. The following day, a devastating earthquake hit western Afghanistan. As of this recording, more than 2,000 Afghans have died and over 9,000 have been injured. Betta is partnering with Sense of Humanity and Learn Afghanistan to raise funds for medical aid, food, and shelter. You can find a link to their fundraiser in the show notes. Now on to my fascinating interview with Betta Dam. I began by asking her how she first came to Afghanistan as a young journalist. I came from the Netherlands where I was covering the parliament. So basically we were in a way embedded with the within that building in The Hague, then because the Netherlands was joining NATO, foreign topics, so to say, became also part of our world because it was foreign affairs that we also included in our coverage, of course. And so, yeah, it was the first opportunity to go embedded and to go and see the war. And so I organized the women's magazine, the biggest one in the Netherlands. And before I knew, I was boarding a very big gray airplane (laughs) from the army, sitting, uh, the only female, I think, with lots and lots of soldiers. And um, yeah, and and the moment we approached Afghanistan, Jamil, it was, I will never forget, the plane started diving very sharply down and up and down and up. And it was extremely intense and made people want to throw up, including the general. And the the (laughs) pilot said, we do this because in this way we avoid regular Taliban attacks on airplanes. So that's how Mm. I arrived in Afghanistan. Confidence building, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, at that moment I thought this is very necessary. This is very necessary because there will be terrorists everywhere in the country. So you were embedded with the Dutch troops there, but slowly you began to realize that the Americans and their NATO allies were not listening to the Afghans. Tell us some incidents that made this clear to you. 
At that time, 2006, our coverage from the Netherlands was 99% embedded. So there was a very specific narrative that I had grown up with in the Afghan war that started in 2001. It was the very strong belief among us that if we would go with the troops, our men, so to say, then we would be safe. And at the same time, we were very much living in that monstrous narrative of outside of the camp, it's super dangerous, don't go there alone. And and then there was a rocket attack. And so I was, of course, typing away, like another Taliban attack on a NATO camp in southern Afghanistan. It's unknown how many people have died. You know how this works. You, you have to be quick. And um, I was very scared, actually, because of that attack. The special forces who rush out of the camp to see if they can find the terrorist, they came back empty-handed. And I happened to stand there and I said, what did you find? And they said, oh, we never find anything. We actually never really catch somebody if we go out. And I think that that was the first moment that I thought, hey, one, I have to be careful with writing this because the military that I can only rely on on this camp doesn't know. Second, what really impacted me was that they didn't know. And they they were so so full of bravoure. It's very intimidating for a journalist, I was 26, to land in a camp where so much violence is used. You know, you, you have these fighting jets and you have artillery that can shoot away like 10 kilometers and it will be introduced to you as very efficient and that they have control over the situation. They believed in their narrative. And and that I found difficult. And then I, I sort of strayed away a little bit from these spokesmen. I tried to just be on my own more. They asked me to go on a patrol. And then I, I asked, so like, which village are we going? So I could maybe Google the village and see. And th- those questions were seen as against their security protocol because I, should, I would bring the lives of the Dutchmen in, in danger. And... And they couldn't answer for the reason of security. But I said, I, I just don't trust it. And I'm not going. And I left soon after and with a very bitter taste of like, what is going on here? <laughs> that was a big question for me, mainly because I believed in the mission. And I believed in journalism. This explains a little bit of something you said in your 2019 TED Talk that was called Why Western Mainstream Reporting Promotes War. You talked about staying in a hotel in Kabul with a rose garden along with other Western journalists. Can you talk a bit about that experience and how it challenged your expectations of Afghanistan? I think that was the second moment of another layer, another deeper layer in understanding Western, basically, news journalism and news business. When I arrived in Kabul, I felt that the idea of us versus them, the idea that the war on terror concept was a true concept that was not touched, that was a sort of default of bow. Almost a mantra. It was a mantra. That that is so, so people, despite the fact that we had lovely houses in Kabul and not so much security, we had 20 different restaurants to to choose from as foreigners, but also 
we had months on end where there was no attack. That national security idea that came from America, that the country was, you know, full of terrorists, that was not correct. One of the things you said in your TED talk is embrace the complexity. Tell us why you think that's so important. Well, because what we did was trying to make it binary. Every attack was framed automatically as a terrorist attack. And sometimes there was not a claim of the Taliban or from their press office, which is also propaganda. And sometimes there was a claim from the Taliban press office. Sometimes they denied that they were involved in a specific attack. But we, I'm studying it now for a PhD, so I'm really looking in very detail in, in, in like how did we report on these attacks. We've been very, very consistent in portraying that country as a very, very dangerous country. And that has a huge impact because we are the lens for Americans, for Europeans, to know about Afghanistan. There's not many other ways that people in New York have equivalent sources to Afghanistan unless they have a friend network with a lot of Afghans or experts in it, which is unlikely. So we have this very important role and that, that was, for me, another disappointment because we did have the freedom to become a little bit more nuanced. In all those months that there was not an attack in Kabul, the moment, and that happened in this rose garden, the moment that there was an attack, I saw that the ABC correspondent, who was also in my lovely hotel, he had to report on it. And it was two, two things. It was an attack that was one and a half hour flight away to the south of Afghanistan. That's where the bomb exploded. And second, the moment he went on camera, he put on a helmet and a vest. And I, I thought, wow, this is very ethically debatable. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like making it theatrical. Yeah, so that was the first moment um, I really, what we now call in, in post-colonial the theories, it was the first moment I talked back. I literally walked over to him when he had, after the life, of course, after it was finished, and he had put his helmet on the table and his vest was off because it was unnecessary. We would, we would go out for dinner that night. And I said, <laughs> why are you doing this? And he was annoyed by it. and. He said, well, that's what my editor wants. The machinery of our Western media does have this very confident idea that we do foreign affairs, we do global journalism. Mm, there's quite some American media who also claim to give the facts to the world. But really, what they do is, and they admit it too in the interviews I have, their audience is American. The people who pay them, who pay these newspapers, are predominantly American or in the West. Mm -hmm. And so they also imagine that most of their audience is still in America. Well, it is in English. So what I saw more and more on the other side of the world, which was in this case Afghanistan, is that Afghans were like, what is going on with this coverage? 
We heard like, is it, Afghanistan is not a hell on earth. We can do things here. There's companies, there's an economy, there's, there's airplanes flying in and out of the country, bringing in all sorts of people who have something to do in 2006, five, but also later on. You ask me, why is it so dangerous to, to, to portray it as a violent, to stereotype it and to otherize mm -hmm. it? as a violent country. It's very dangerous because sometimes we saw, I, I see that in my research now, that when we said another ISIS attack, because we went through this also in Afghanistan, you immediately saw a politician in, in Washington, D.C. saying, we need extra troops. Mm -hmm, right. And, and we did not investigate these attacks. It was very normal to basically leave the cross-check out, which we also see now in our research of the New York Times and Associated Press, but I could have chosen Reuters or any of the big ones, where we see that when we talk about an explosion, we paste our idea, our Western idea on it. It's ideological. It's people who are against us. In a sense, it's almost like they're basically there to report on violent conflict, whether it's there or not, or to find violent conflict and report that. Yeah, I, I was naive, and I did not see this coming, that, that we basically distort the picture. And that's not because I am an activist. It's, it's really simple, the ethics of journalism. And, and we, we should go back to the ethics of journalism and have a fundamental debate about what it means. And it, I think that is essential. And, and we, we can do that. One of the things you write about is that there are a number of suppressed narratives. One of the biggest is the fact that the Taliban surrendered and turned over power to the U.S.-backed leader Hamid Karzai in December of 2001. Yeah. Do you think this decades-long war could have been avoided? What is the very important point to learn from that moment on the 5th and the 6th and the 7th of December, when indeed top, top level Taliban surrender openly. And what we see is that Hamid Karzai, the then president, or the interim leader at the time, that's a detail, but he makes this happen. Uh, I said that's not the point. The point is that the American government on, the, on that, when Karzai announced it, that there was a surrender, that the Taliban, including Mullah Omar, could go, that there's an American move, American government move, saying, we don't accept this. The government, Rumsfeld, Donald Rumsfeld and his team, who I interviewed, from their perspective, it's logic, because they said that the towers were still burning better. What do you want us to do? We did not have this nuanced idea, because actually not many knew the Taliban. I cannot say to you where this would lead, but I find it, uh, the point is that we killed it. The press killed it. The American government killed it on purpose, because ideologically they were against it, but then we went along with them. And that is the mm -hmm. problem. The news media was complicit in effect. Yeah, and, and that is a very important moment to sit down and to say, how come this happened? How many other peace initiatives did we overlook? Mm. Because we were also basically very, very ideological. We were very Western 
we did have a white, sorry, a Western editor in New York or in The Hague or in Paris who also was thinking like us, where is the cross-check? You know, where is that multi-perspective that we claim to have? Where does that come in in the process? And I really hope that we can have this conversation and be honest. Then we see that after Iraq, that the New York Times fired a an, an, uh, journalist because something similar happened, where we went along with the American government about their ideas about what Iraq was about, according to the American government. And that's a problem. But, you know, unfortunately, these Mia culpas come a little bit late <laughs> in the game. Another suppressed narrative, or maybe just a gap in understanding, had to do with the way power was organized in Afghanistan. Yeah. Can you briefly explain the misunderstandings around who was fighting whom in the relationship between al-Qaeda and the Taliban? I think the biggest impact on the destruction of Afghanistan has been a concept of power that I have not learned in my political science and international relations studies in Amsterdam, and also right now in Paris, where I teach at Sciences Po, we, don't, we do not have knowledge about this other way of political power, which has much more to do with the impact and the power of families. And sometimes these families are very big, and then they call them tribes. I had no idea about that. Only when I went there and, and when I arrived alone in Kabul, I first had, and that were, was the words fixer would, would fit that because I, I first worked with Afghans suggested to me by my colleagues from the news business, Western colleagues. And those fixers were fixers. They just did what I wanted. They were looking for women's stories, woman, women's rights. They were looking for corruption stories. They were looking for Al-Qaeda stories. And they were basically talking the war on terror language already before I even opened my mouth. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they were trained. Yeah, they were with an invisible rule, working with this invisible rule. I was not so long ago in Afghanistan with an American newspaper, and I saw how they operated with the Afghans who translate for them, who call people for them. It's a one-way road. They come in, they tell the Afghan colleague what to do, how, to, how fast, and what stories, topics they have already decided on before they arrived. Right. And I think, I don't know why, but because I, I also had a book contract, so I needed to work also on a longer story with a long narrative about how this Hamid Karzai had come to power. And and because I interviewed one of the players in that network, there was a son hanging around as well who corrected me when I asked questions, where I was bluntly, factually wrong. He was completely right to interrupt me. Of course, I was new in the country. I sat down and I invited him for, for a tea and I said, what, what do you do? And, and we talked and it was a match. I felt that he had the knowledge that he could educate me. And of course, he should have written the book because he knew much more than I did. I just listened to him for three years in a row. Like he was always there. <laughs> we, we worked together at some point and I paid You him. have to do that sometimes. Yeah. yeah. 
I found it very beautiful of this other podcast about Syria, where the mm -hmm. journalist, the Syrian journalist advises also when you come in. And, and of course, maybe we should get rid of this whole concept of coming in. One thing that's very interesting, she said, is that maybe if you make the Western person arriving in Syria a little bit smaller, you draw it a bit smaller. And the Syrian person, as a colleague, is much bigger. So many people right. have no idea about Syria. We need to accept that. I did not know anything about Afghanistan. Right. No, I think that's so important. I mean, just for, for listeners who aren't aware, Betta is referring to one of our earlier episodes with Zaina Erheim, who was reporting from Syria and talked a lot about how these fixers who are often doing the job for the reporters get so little credit and so little... Agency. Agency, exactly, exactly. You wrote a book, Looking for the Enemy, Mullah Omar and the Unknown Taliban, in 2021. When did you decide it was a good idea to start talking to Taliban members, and how did you go about it? Well, the outcome of the Karzai study, so the government study, basically, was that what you see is that a foreign entity comes into this country, which is, in this case, Afghanistan, and they are looking for allies. They clap each other on the shoulder and say, we are going to do this together. And because the receiving end, in this case, the Afghan government, is financially completely dependent on the Americans, there is an understanding on the surface that they will help each other finding the terrorists. Now, that was propaganda, in a way. Because both parties and the U.S. government and the Afghan government were communicating that they were actually needing more troops because they needed to kill the enemy, which is Taliban and Al-Qaeda. They mixed that up, which is a problem. But what actually happened is that we, the, the foreign entity, including NATO, of course, started working with governors and police commanders. And we were really convinced that these provincial governors and police commanders were blank sheets. It's very colonial, but they we sort of like we said we, from now on we are together and we are going to do this. And the Afghan counterpart said yes, but the Afghan counterpart has a very long history. Before he was even born, his family lived in a structure where there has been a lot of peacemaking between the tribes and also conflict between the tribes. So the family structure is the basis. There's a tribal leader, and that tribal leader's main goal, despite the fact that his little name on the door is probably governor, and that's so we can we know where to go as Westerners, but there's much more in, happening in his life, which is often more, more important than that governorship. So what you see is that this, these governors, for example, they actually started giving information to the Americans saying, oh, you are talking the ideological narrative of war on terror, saying you're looking for terrorists. Okay, go to this valley and then go to this valley because that's where they are. And too often, the Americans did not cross-check this information. It's not because the Afghan governor is a wrong person or an evil person, the, the Afghan government lives in his own reality and suddenly gets this foreign entity with lots of dollars 
and lots of weapons so he can continue his life. He has the upper hand because he has Superman behind him. And so too often the Americans blindly followed the governors and killed the people they were pointed at by their counterpart. And in many, many, many cases of explosions that were reported by us, also as Taliban, because we too often interviewed only the Americans, actually were rivals. Right, we conflated a lot of it. Freedom of the press is a core value of liberal democracy. And in the U.S., we refer to the press as the fourth estate. It's a fourth check on power outside of the three branches of government. But research, as well as your own experience, tell us that in overseas wars, at least in the beginning, the same mainstream news outlets don't operate the same way abroad. Too often they fall into a good guys versus bad guy narrative where good guys are whoever is on our side. Why do you think there's this gap between domestic and overseas uh, reporting? I'm not sure if there is such a big gap, um, Jamil, because there's also very, very interesting academic research on how did we report in America on security issues. And sometimes that involves the police. We see similar patterns when there is an incident on American territory, we rely too often on the officials also. Similar concept. We do it in extreme when we go abroad. What is really true, I think, is that we are so fortunate that we, we can actually, we, we can permit a lot in journalism. We have this freedom in America. I only know a lot about Afghanistan, not even everything, of course, but I know a little bit more about than, you know, I, I worked there for 15 years. So what is painful to see is that despite this liberty, despite this freedom, and so many other journalists would love to have this freedom in other countries. I mean, there's, of course, things go wrong in our press freedom world, but overall, we, we are not bothered. And, and that is something so precious and so privileged to have that I wonder what, why do we do, why do we not embrace it for what it is and then stop, stop being this very Western entity, for example, in Afghanistan, where you self-censor by basically interviewing mostly your own people about topics that relate to your own values. We do not in these sort of conflicts Overall, despite some good freelance work, there are freelancers going very far. Right. They play a very important role. But Beta, you're, you're very passionate. It's so clear that you're very passionate about removing the Western bias from international journalists. In an ideal ecosystem for journalism, are there any biases that you think should be shared? Yeah. You know, some of our previous guests have talked about having a bias towards peace. Another talked about a bias towards human rights. Deborah Douglas talked about a bias towards democracy. We are all biased and we will be forever. That's one thing. And we have to be aware of that. Maybe we should, in the utopian sense, think about how to produce knowledge about a country. And then think in real global terms, like can we 
have multi-perspective news desks. Even me, I have done the Mula Omar book on my own. And I guarantee you, it would have been much better if we would have been a team. And maybe also even with somebody from the other side of the world with their systems and their values mm. and, and, and combine, combine that because it's a lot of work to de-bias on your own. And especially if the loudest voice, as we have now, is one that stereotypes and that chooses to bring negative news. That's nothing new. We know that. Listen to your next bulletin and count the amount of topics that's negative about foreign affairs. So we need to listen. We need to be in a team, probably have an openness and, and an ethical awareness of how to be curious and how to let the other have their agency to talk. Exactly. No, I think that's so clear from everything you've said. I guess if I had to describe your bias, I would describe it as listening for the complexity, listening for all sides of the story, and not just simply embracing one side or another side, but really looking for the complexity and talking about it in your reporting. That's the feeling I get. Yeah, I think and that's also why I maybe... I, I think the concept of, of what we now know is peace journalism, of solutions journalism. The ingredients are extremely important to learn about, like the rules they came with, the ideas of how to produce journalism is important. But I am sad about the idea that the creators of these schools of thought had to give an additional word to the word journalism. I think we should really go back to journalism to just pure, pure trying to be a responsible cover um, reporter. And I think the Western bias is nothing new. It has actually been there from the beginning of journalism. And that's because we are in the most powerful part of the world. We were the colonializers. We, we did create narratives about Africa that have a very strong ring with colonialism. Because we create history on this part of the world, and that is all that is over. We have a lot of narrative right now about how to decolonize or whatever you want to call it, but we need to be more inclusive and right now, the news desks are still too often predominantly with one group of this world, and that's nothing not that's not going to work. I don't want to be reported by a news desk like that because I would not trust it. Not simply because I don't like them, because they, they are not equipped enough to, to do journalism. Well, that's, that's a wonderful thought to leave it with. And I'm very grateful for your participation in our podcast. We're always trying to shine uh, a bright light on the way we look at war. There's so much to learn about. And you've been a good teacher in the sense that you really went there with uh, intense curiosity. Thank you very much for your participation, and I'm so glad we can talk to you Thank tonight. you so much. It was a pleasure. There's a lot more to learn from Betadam. In the show notes, there are links to her TED Talk and her blog on Substack, as well as her two books on the Afghan war. You can also find a link in the show notes to a fundraiser for victims of Saturday's earthquake in western Afghanistan. It's organized by Beta in partnership with two nonprofits, Learn Afghanistan and Sense of Humanity. Please give generously. To get to know Beta Dam a bit more personally, 
check out our newsletter, where we've got a Q&A that's not covered on the podcast. Our newsletter comes out on alternate Thursdays, two days after the episode. Go to warstoriespeacestories.org slash contact to sign up. Making Peace Visible is produced by Andrew Moraskin. Faith McClure writes our newsletter and designs our website. Peter Agus is the creative director, and I'm Jamil Simon. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. There's a link in the show notes to do just that. Thanks so much for listening, and talk soon.